Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we are joined by two guests, two economists. And the good thing is that neither of them needs any introduction to our listeners because they are well-known economists in a New Zealand context. I welcome my colleague Dr. Bryce Wilkinson and our very special guest, the former governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, Graeme Wheeler. Welcome to you both. Well, thank, thank you very much, Oliver. It's great yeah. to be here. Thank you, Oliver. We've invited you onto the podcast because you have jointly written a paper which the initiative is releasing this week. It's called How Central Bank Mistakes After 2019 Led to Inflation. We should probably clarify this is a paper not about the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, or at least not purely. It's about monetary policy worldwide. You're looking at the world of monetary policy and you're asking what has gone wrong. And that leads me to my first question. When I look at you, Graeme, you must be so pleased not to be in charge these days because you were governor right after the GFC and before COVID and the current troubles hit us. So these were basically the golden days of New Zealand monetary policy. Would you rather like to be in charge today? I was there during a, a pretty interesting period because there were some global shocks. But we did have five years on average of 3% growth and 3% employment growth. The challenge that we had, or one of the challenges, was inflation was around one and a quarter to one and a half percent on average over time. But being a central banker is is both challenging and stimulating, because you're dealing with all the complexities of of an economy, particularly operating in a global world with its vast ranges of shocks and disturbances, and it's also a role where you're given enormous responsibility. Because the consequences of policy mistakes are enormous. Uh, because your decisions can affect the standard of living of, of people. It can affect employment. It can affect income, business failures. affect the price of assets. And the impact when you get decisions wrong is usually greatest on the most vulnerable people in society. Those that are self-employed or running small businesses or those on the lowest income. So... I thoroughly love the stimulus of the role and the intellectual challenges and working with very dedicated colleagues, but I don't miss the stress about wondering, have you got the right decisions? I imagine. And this concern for people's lives, for the well-being of the economy, was that also what triggered your joint paper, Bryce? Yes, and it's a follow-up to the paper the initiative published last year on walking the pathway to the next global financial crash. And time has moved on and we've got the inflation scenario and the dilemmas that the central banks have found themselves into. Firstly, they thought there wasn't going to be inflation. Secondly, they thought it was temporary. And now they're up backs against the wall with a very difficult problem. So this is this this paper is very timely, and we're delighted to be able to collaborate with someone of Graham standing in it. And we should probably explain to our listeners that you have a long shared history in economic policy. You've known each other for, I believe, forty-five years, something like that. <laughs> uh, probably would be close to that. Yes, we were, we were both in Treasury together in yeah. the early nineteen eighties in the macroeconomic side. Is that where you first met? Yes, Bryce was my boss and, and I'm still learning from him, so he's a great <laughs> colleague to work with. Well, that's great, actually, after all these years writing a paper together. Now, let's get into the issues that you're dealing with. When you're looking at the world of monetary policy today, 
I mean, obviously, we all see inflation, we all feel the effect of price rises. Is that something that surprised you when it started happening probably about a year ago? Well, not really, to be honest, because I had been on record with a number of colleagues about the concerns I had about quantitative easing and why were central banks providing so much stimulus when the fiscal authorities were already providing massive fiscal stimulus. And we started to see the effects very quickly in the housing market. We saw it in terms of compression of yields in the market. And given that you have a supply curve, an aggregate supply curve, that's relatively steep, and you've got all this fiscal stimulus, then to me it was inevitable that inflation would start to increase in product markets. And that's that's what we've seen. But for a long time, despite similar stimulus, inflation didn't take off. For a long time, we had this great moderation. Okay, we had price mm -hmm. increases, but in asset prices, of course, but not in consumer prices. So did that surprise you? Well, there were a lot of there were a lot of supply side factors linked to globalization that were pulling down inflation. I mean, the fact that IT prices were falling, that capital goods prices were falling, that there was a global oversupply of manufactured goods coming out of China. I mean, when I was governor during the five-year period, we had a situation where inflation in the non-tradable sector was growing at about three and a half percent. And that's why we increased interest rates at one point in time. And, and that was what we underestimated was, was the strength or the weakness, I should put it really, of global prices on the traded goods sector. And so that's what kept inflation low in many of these economies. Yeah, and adding hundreds of millions of people in productive capacity to the world's economy. Yes, I mean, you, you've had a massive increase in employment in the labor markets coming out of Asia, especially China. Mm. Bryce, I know it didn't surprise you that inflation at some stage kicked off, but we had discussions in the office about a year ago, a bit longer perhaps, and some of our colleagues said, well, actually, you are a bit too gloomy, you and me especially, mm. and they pointed out that markets simply hadn't priced any of this inflation in. It simply didn't occur anywhere. Did markets actually miss something that we saw? What was unnerving, I think, for me is that markets were pricing on the basis that central banks and governments would sustain extraordinarily high asset prices. So you and I, Oliver, were quite unnerved that at a time of big unemployment economic downturn with COVID, with lockdowns, redundancies and bankruptcies actually reduced. And asset prices, Standard & Poor's 500 index, for example, hit record highs. And we thought, this is, this is a pathology. I found that I was surprised that we didn't get more inflation prior to 2020. And the puzzle was Japan, that Japan had managed to build up public debt and so much and not had inflation broken out. But I think Graham has put his finger on it that the world was going through a period with globalization where inflation in, in non-traded goods was very, very low. And the other thing I found was grotesque was that I think the inflation range of getting inflation up to 2%, 2% was too high for that period. And we had the grotesque situation of, of central banks, which had put economies through the ringer in the 1980s to weed inflation expectations down 
we're now in a situation because of this inflation target of having to try and get inflation up. And I just didn't, never believe that inflation expectations were that controllable. You, you played with them at your peril. It was like a child trying to play with fire. And that's what we're seeing now, that they talked inflation up and it wasn't controllable enough and, and it's got away on them. That's almost a philosophical question, really, how good markets are at foreseeing the future. I mean, when we go back through the last two decades, I mean, markets didn't really see the GFC coming. They didn't see the European debt crisis coming. They, the ratings agencies, they still gave double A's and triple A's to companies that a few weeks later disappeared. Oh. So how good are markets actually anticipating where things like inflation are headed? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we all studied efficient market theory and yes. how to price assets, particularly how to price risk. But financial markets are significantly influenced by central bank forecasts, particularly if they believe that that central bank is committed to price stability and can deliver price stability. But you've also conscious that there's a lot of herd behavior in financial markets. And I recall the situation with Argentina because I was studying it quite a lot in the, in the World Bank. It had defaulted nine times since since it gained independence in around about 1815 from memory. And yet uh, bondholders continued to acquire Argentinian bonds. And I'll give an example. In, in 2017, I was quite surprised to see Argent Argentina issue a 100-year bond for two and three-quarter billion US dollars. And the yield was, I think, just below 8%. Now, that bond was more than three times oversubscribed to a country that had defaulted nine times. Now, that inevitably, I think almost inevitably, Argentina defaulted again, and those bondholders have lost very substantial money. Were these bondholders forced into holding Argentinian bonds by regulation that they had to hold some government bonds? No, not, no, not at all. Oh. Not at so all. they were just optimistic? Yeah, a lot of them. A lot of them were just impressed with the yield, mm -hmm. the 8%. But one of the things that is a corollary of the quantitative easing that central banks have done is you've basically seen yield compression across a whole range of asset classes and, you know, a mispricing of risk. You raise a very interesting point here with Argentina. So you pointed out to Argentina's history and nine defaults over I don't know how many years. And yet... When it comes to issuing a new bond, the markets are jumping at it. Would you say that this is perhaps an indication of a, an ignorance of history, if you like, that we are perhaps too steeped in our mathematical models and our macro models and we've completely forgotten the political reality, the historical reality, the cultural reality? That would actually be perhaps even more important to know than just putting some data through a macroeconomic model. I, th I think there's an element of that. I mean, a lot of investors have similar benchmarks. They have similar risk models, and they want to get the profits of those that have preceded them. So in essence, by investing, they, in fact, drive the yield lower of those securities. And it might be a very risky asset with great credit risk. So instead of basically seeking a higher risk premium for that investment, uh, their actions, in fact, compress the yields. So yeah, I think I think 
people have pretty short memories sometimes about credit exposure and past records. Bryce, you've also had the benefit of being around for a long time, so you have seen all of these cycles, and each time there's someone saying, but this time is different. Has it ever been different? Oh, no, that will never change, yes. How how the future will unfold is is not predetermined, so there will always be differences in views about it. The, the thought I have on this question you're raising of markets not getting things right, I, I feel that the bond market, the global bond market, isn't really a market as sort of someone like Hayek would see it. We've got heavy involvement from governments getting their own banking systems to buy their bonds. There are these big sovereign bonds, fund managers, uh, wealth managers around the world, and, you know, their objectives aren't, their, their objectives are, are political strategic, some of them in parts. So a question Graham might be able to throw some light on is, is the one he raised on Argentina. Just who were buying the bonds and tens of billions of dollars worth at these sort of negative yields in the case of some of the government bonds? And, you know, to what degree is it these big sovereign funds which are affect market pricing? Well, in the case of Argentina, a number of commercial banks were buying those bonds, a number of hedge funds, a number of European investors, definitely. I mean, it's you go back to probably around, I think, 2015 or so, you had 18 trillion US dollars equivalent of negative yielding bonds in the markets. And a a lot of those were five-year and 10-year maturity. So the long dur- longer duration bonds, so there's a lot of interest rate risk around them. And the only way, basically, uh, an investor would make a profit is if the yields fell. Mm. But do you think that level of negative trading bonds would have been possible without regulatory or political intervention? What do you think, Bryce? That's, a, that's an interesting question. It's very hard to believe, isn't it, that, that the market's, as Graham said, just stop pricing risk. Uh, risk differentials fell away to almost anything. There must be enormous sort of blood on people's balance sheets at the moment. Did you say 8 trillion bonds? At 18. 18. 18. 18 trillion bonds at those yields. The capital losses on that already. Oh, just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. There's going to be a lot of grief. Mm. Yeah. Since we are already talking in historical dimensions, when you're looking at the world today, the world of monetary policy in 2022, what does it remind you of? Are there any periods in our recent history or longer history that you think are comparable to the current situation we're experiencing? Is it something that reminds you of the 1920s leading to the Great Depression? Is it something that reminds you maybe of the GFC or is it something completely different? It's, it's a mixture of different episodes, I think. I mean, you've got a serious inflation problem. You've got the developing world especially highly exposed to debt. And the World Bank recently basically said that there's probably up to 100 countries, developing countries, that need to reschedule their debt. And a lot of them indebted to China these days. Quite a lot of them, yes. (laughs) But also to commercial banks. I mean, those that are mostly exposed are those that have US dollar debt because the US dollar is appreciating quite strongly and US interest rates are certainly going to rise further. I mean, I could easily see the Fed funds rate above 
half percent by the end of the year. Isn't that interesting? I mean, in 2007, 8, 9, at the time of the GFC, the big talk was we need to deleverage because we realized we had too much debt in the global economy mm. and we needed to get out of the summer. Now, a bit more than a decade on, actually there is no deleveraging at all. Quite the opposite happened. So why have we not learned the lesson back then around 2008? It's a good, it's a very good question. I mean, part of the rise in debt is is due to COVID in, in respect of public debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, you saw debt to GDP ratios in many advanced economies increase by 20 percentage points over that two-year period. But a lot of it is just a climate of very low interest rates and where governments are doing massive quantitative easing and injecting huge amounts of liquidity into the economy. I mean, you'll get you'll get a situation where zombie firms will survive very easily, where all sorts of people can get access to credit and will drive up, drive up asset prices. On your public debt point, I read recently that it took the United States more than 200 years to have 7 trillion US dollars in public debt. And that was exactly how much they added in the last couple of years. <laughs> yes. So this public debt thing is one thing, but there's a lot of private debt as well. There's a lot of private debt linked to probably overvalued housing markets, Yes, mortgage debt. And again, back to the question, we had all of these problems around 2008. It was pretty visible. We had the collapse mm. of the U.S. housing market, mm. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac at the time. Sure. Why did we not actually learn these lessons? Would it have required maybe an international equivalent of a royal commission after the GFC to figure out what went wrong to prevent that? Why did we never get this? It's, it's a puzzle, isn't it? And, and I think part of it is, in, in a number of advanced economies, if you look at middle-income salary levels, they haven't increased in real terms very substantially in recent decades. Now, part of that is due to the globalization, but I think a number of governments around the world are very keen to see greater levels of home ownership and encourage home ownership as a form of savings, as a form of increasing wealth. And so if you look at bank balance sheets, it's a huge part of their, their lending. Now, I was when I was in the World Bank, I was responsible for leading all the discussions with the, with the IMF around the time of the global financial crisis. And I remember the US housing market. The US had 50 million mortgage holders And at the peak of the global financial crisis, 24% of households that had mortgages had negative equity. And another 5% of households had equity of less than 5%. And a few of them were non-recourse loans, so they could just walk away from them. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think there's a, a, a very strong incentive for banks to provide mortgage lending. A lot of them see it as, as low risk in terms of risk-weighted assets. They see less credit exposure with it than some of the uh, more risky commercial lending. And governments are very keen to see high levels of home ownership in economies. Mm. So we've got banks, we have central banks, regulators, politicians. Where do you see the main culprit for what's happened in global finance over the last 10, 15 years, Bryce? I, I think that it's got governments have got big and got unrestrained. So the global financial crisis was um, big, big problems in the housing market, largely government-driven, 
Fafalia, Fannie Mae, Dinnie Mae, Freddie Mac, that created a world banking crisis which governments bailed out and so it's become the public debt crisis, the sort of problem we've got now. And governments are behaving as if money's not a constraint. You know, the Ukraine war comes on and there's a few more billions sort of put on the tag. Governments are sort of spending like a household would if it could just keep piling it up on the credit card and never had to deal with the debt problem. And it's that... So we've got the situation at the moment, you know, in New Zealand, when you look at it, that firm after firm is struggling to hire labour. Meanwhile, government's sort of paying great wage rates and pumping up state employment. So it's the state which is expanding, while the people who generate the incomes and the wealth which states depend on to get the tax money is rolling in it. So I think it, I think at the end of the day, governments have lost their way. They've become too big and money's too easy, and their control of the central banks is part of that problem. Which leads us straight to your joint paper. So I've already mentioned the title of the paper, How Central Bank Mistakes After 2019 Led to Inflation. That reminds me of Milton Friedman's famous quote, that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So would the summary of your paper be that central banks actually just created too much money and inflated the monetary base too much, and that's what caused the current inflation problem? Yes, I think bank central banks have made some serious errors of judgment in conducting monetary policy over the last two years. I mean, we've got inflation at a 40-year high. And if you look at the US, over the last two years, you've had inflation of 14%, 12% in the, in the UK. Now, some central banks suggested that this was due to damaged supply lines due to COVID restrictions. For example, the, the shortage of microprocessors from Taiwan, for example, or it was due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact on energy prices, wheat and fertiliser. And there are factors that, that have affected inflation, but they are not in any way the main drivers of inflation. Because when that happens, what you usually get is you have a shift in relative prices in the economy. That's so something goes up and another thing will go down. That, that's exactly right. I mean, you've got several countries that now have annual inflation that's relatively low compared to the rest. I mean, in a 2 to 4% range, you see countries like, like China, Japan, Switzerland, there's several Asian economies. And if you look at core inflation, which is headline inflation, less food and energy, then over the last two years core inflation has accounted for 70% of headline inflation in the US and UK and 60% of headline inflation in France and 50% in Germany. So the main reason why we've had this surge in, of inflation is this extraordinary monetary and fiscal stimulus that has been applied following the, uh, the spread of covid Now, I can understand the fiscal stimulus in terms of assistance to businesses and to households and trying to sustain income levels. But what I can't understand is this extraordinary monetary stimulus, which pushed up commodity prices, equity markets, house prices, and spilled over and into product inflation that we're seeing now. I mean, quite frankly, central banks overdid the scale of QE. Many continued at 
massive programs even after bond yields rose in late 2020 and the evidence was clear that the economies were stronger than forecast and inflation pressures were starting to build. So central banks have seriously damaged their credibility and and that's something that they need to address honestly and address with the public. Mm. I'm not going to ask you the next question, Graham, because I would want to spare you need to comment on your successor at the Reserve Bank. So I'm going to ask the same question, but to Bryce. Just to bring it a bit closer to home, where you say that central banks have increased um, the monetary base too much. Let's, let's exemplify this with the example of the RBNZ. We had John McDermott actually in this podcast studio just a few weeks ago, and he pointed out two things. First of all, in February 2020, the monetary base was just under $15 billion dollars. As of today, it is around $54 billion. So we've had a massive increase in the monetary base. And John predicted that this will now filter through the price level unless we wind it back. And he had the second example of Norway. So John McDermott also pointed out that while all central banks, of course, increased monetary stimulus at the beginning of COVID, the Norwegians were much faster at winding it back. So they are basically now at the kind of monetary base level they had before COVID, whereas we are now more than threefold above that. Does that explain our inflation problem? Oh, yes, it does. It's the, the big expansion of the money base and, uh, and very importantly too, the, the very low interest rates, which uh, will have stimulated the housing market and will have been part now of raising inflation expectations. And the central government, uh, governor of the bank, um, encouraging banks to get out and keep lending, which was a bit bizarre because he was also had been saying earlier that they needed higher reserve asset ratios because their balance sheets were already bit imprudent. So that was a mixed signal. But the scale of it, just one figure to show the scale of the problem, the, the Reserve Bank, um, with great transparency, has got a, a paper loss of $8 billion dollars on the bonds it was paying too much, far too much to buy building pr prices up and yields down. And that eight, uh, $8 billion loss, that's about $4,000 per household for New Zealand. Well, that's a massive sort of hidden tax on householders. It's an opportunity loss, but that's what you get when you pay too much for assets and it's not your money. It's just too easy and too hard to be held properly accountable for. Let's get back to... The core of your paper. You have a list of six things that central banks around the world got wrong. You can read this as a definition of all the failures, but you could also read it in reverse. You could say, okay, if these were the mistakes, these are all recommendations now how to fix things. And I want to take you through the list and just get a few comments from you on each of the th uh, six points. Your first point, and we already touched on that a bit earlier, central banks became overconfident in their inflation targeting frameworks. What do you mean by that, Graham? Well, I think they became very confident that they could maintain low inflation for a long period of time and that they could have what they saw as the best of all worlds in a way, if they were going to provide this enormous stimulus, that they could have very low interest rates. In fact, some central banks had negative interest rates and they could have these absolutely massive amounts of quantitative easing by injecting all, you know, huge amounts of liquidity into the economy and that inflation would remain low. So if central banks 
should not use these t- frameworks? What other alternative frameworks should they use? Well, I think flexible inflation targeting still has an important role. I mean, price stability is a valuable thing in the sense that if you can create a situation where businesses and households in doing their undertaking their business and carrying out their lives don't have to worry about inflation, then that's a good thing. But they lost sight of their ability to to maintain low inflation under all sorts of circumstances. And I think they lost sight of the importance that these global supply side factors had played in keeping inflation low for a long period of time. And some of those just done, just reversed. The second point on your list, central banks were overconfident in the models they used to base monetary policy decisions. So a general distrust in economic modeling and macroeconomic modeling or just a distrust in a specific kind of economic modeling, Bryce? Well, it's a general di- distrust, I think. Your models are an oversimplification of, of the situation. They have to be. And they represent the modeler's perspective on how things work. But those are tentative and uh, the, the transmission uh, mechanisms for monetary policy are variable and circumstance dependent, depend a lot on expectations. People can read what a central bank's uh, saying and say, oh, well, I think they're going to do the opposite, or yes, they're really determined to do that. Those are things which can't be mechanistically dealt with in a model. Okay, which leads us to point number three, and that's one for you, Graham. Central banks were excessively optimistic that they could successfully fine-tune economic activity. So is that a distrust in economic planning more widely than central banks, or what do you mean by that? Well, monetary policy is always, and it's well known, to be a blunt instrument of economic management. And it's always difficult to know exactly what growth path an economy is on. I mean, partly because you get a number of revisions to statistics about GDP and the lags on those can be quite long in terms of the corrections coming out. But you're also never clear what the transmission path of monetary policy will be. It could be through wealth effects. It could be through the pricing of risk assets. It could be through interest-sensitive expenditures. It could be through the exchange rate. And you're never sure about the lags involved, how long it will take before you start affecting economic activity. So I think the central banks just got too confident, far too confident about their ability to fine-tune the economy. That is almost a Hayekian argument. So you say that no one can really centralise the necessary knowledge to actually make these decisions and plan an economy. No, that's absolutely right. And, you know, as as Bryce was just talking about the models, I mean, the models are highly simplified. They're based on what we call output gaps, and some of the key ingredients in those models can't be observed. So you're looking at, you know, what's the path of potential output, what is the output gap at any point in time, what is the neutral interest rate, which is neither stimulatory nor contractionary, and how does the actual rate compare to that? And they've got very simple assumptions about mean reversion. They've got simple assumptions about wage determination, flat Phillips curves, for example. So they just got overconfident in their ability to fine-tune an economy, and 
But I'd also question the judgment in that for the economy as a whole, you have a very steep supply curve because of COVID and you've got very, very large fiscal stimulus. So why are the central banks injecting so much liquidity into the economy? To me, it was just bound to come out, not only in house price inflation, but also product inflation. Mm. So if you have a central bank that is too confident in its own modeling, if it is also willing to try to fine-tune the economy, that leads us almost straight to point number four on your list, and that is central banks took their eye off their core responsibilities and focused on issues that were much less central to their roles, Price. Yes, and the particular indicator of that is the major central banks, well, nearly most of the central banks in the world, getting together and getting focused on climate change. And they had to sort of try and make a case that climate change, which is a slow gestation sort of distant thing, is a real threat to global financial stability. That case, they still haven't really been able to make, but they, they're putting a lot of resources into trying to make it, and no doubt they'll, they'll produce some papers which, which do make the argument, but I don't know how many people it's going to, to convince. But that's a massive distra- uh, distraction, given the, the chaos which was uh, looming up on them, of unprecedented increases in global liquidity, unprecedentedly low interest rates from uh, central banks and unbelievable growth in in public debt ratios which totally violated the normally prudent rules as set out for example in the in the european maastricht treaty Mm. so yeah big distractions and these distractions lead us straight to the next point point number five on your list dual mandates for monetary policy create conflict so dual mandates of course meaning that central bank should be in charge of not just price stability, but also supporting employment. Actually, we might soon see a triple mandate in the case of the Federal Reserve. The Biden administration is now thinking about giving the Federal Reserve a third mandate for racial equality. That is not the way central banks should go, looking at you, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> well, central banks in recent years, have, as Bryce said, have, have taken on a lot more responsibility. I mean, they've moved into the area of climate change, uh, some of them into the areas of income and wealth disparities, sometimes social considerations. Housing. And, yeah, exactly. And you mentioned the US. I'd be surprised if that ends up in legislation, given some of the concerns in the Republican Party around around that. It would also be difficult to imagine in practical terms how a central bank could achieve that target. Oh, absolutely. They, d- they don't have the instruments or the expertise. Just uh, as you wouldn't put a central bank in charge of running the education system. Th- 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 <laughs> that's absolutely right. And they don't have the expertise on climate change issues and they don't have the policy tools. But where the dual mandate becomes problematic, especially, is when central banks are charged with not only price stability, but also maximising employment growth. And every central banker in the world, at least those that I've worked with, has always looked at the labour market when they're looking at policy decisions because wage inflation and employment considerations and productivity and growth are, are all part of the, the rubric that you want to be, be studying But where problems arise is when you don't give primacy to price stability. 
because you can get a situation, which is really where we are now in many cases, and it will become increasingly clear. You have very high inflation and you have employment that may be growing slowly or may be falling and unemployment rising. So if you have a dual mandate and no primacy to either of those objectives, then what are you supposed to do in the central bank? Are you supposed to raise interest rates in order to contain inflation pressures that will inevitably create more business failures and higher unemployment? Uh, Or are you supposed to lower interest rates? So it's if you are going to have other considerations to price stability, I believe it's it's critical that you give primacy to one of those objectives and the appropriate one yeah. is price stability. Well, in, in theoretical economics, the question whether central banks should target price stability or employment or whether they can choose between the two, that had been solved since the 1970s. I remember, and you probably do too, German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt at the time with a famous saying, mm. it was in the mid-70s, if he could choose between 5% inflation and 5% unemployment, he would take the 5% inflation. Well, and a year later, he had both. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, yes, he, yes, he so did. That was a misunderstanding of um, economics at the time. And I think from roughly the late 1970s, the profession had broadly agreed on the fact that actually it is price stability that central banks should focus on. Yes, you might have in a very short run some choice between the two, between unemployment and inflation, but in the long run, what a central bank can do is price stability. And basically that had been settled. So how surprising is it for both of you that really 40 years on, we have politicians now pretending as if that debate never happened? As I said before, I think that governments have lost track of what they can achieve and what they can't achieve They've overextended public expectations of what governments can achieve are are much too high. Um, And prudence has been a casualty of that. But that's now ingrained in the way of things. But so the paper is calling for a lot deal of, uh, a great deal of self-examination over what's happened in the last decade and more and I think central banks need to do that, but so do governments. But the prospects, of how that's going to happen, are not clear. But hopefully this paper is a contribution to the understanding of the need for those, those things. And that leads us to point number six on your list, and that's actually a question. The question is, did some central banks try too hard to support government political objectives in making judgments about monetary policy? Question mark. Graham, which governments, which central banks did you have in mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, ra- I'd rather steer clear of that one if, if I could. Yes, go ahead. There's a, it's a complicated relationship in the sense that central banks are aware that governments can withdraw at any point in time the mandate that they've given them in terms of operational independence over monetary policy. But equally, you find that central banks are reluctant to publicly criticise government policy and particularly fiscal policy or regulatory issues around the housing market, for example. That's true in many countries. You've also got a situation where the central banks depend upon the government for funding their operating expenditures, either through direct transfers or through being able to retain some of the uh, seniorage, for example. So it's a, it's a complicated relationship and I would question whether some central banks have 
basically tried to please their governments far too much. Sometimes the relationship runs the other way around. I mean, for a while, it looked as if the ECB was the only functional institution left in Europe because the European Commission couldn't do anything, the national governments couldn't agree on anything, and then they all relied on the ECB to bail, bail them out in the euro crisis. Yes, and I think that's right, and and I think the central banks started to believe that they really were the only game in town, that somehow that they were the first port of action, if you like, for addressing economic policy, that they superseded the Treasury in that role. A number of them became asset managers in many respects in terms of the quantitative easing and which sort of bonds might they buy. And you saw that in the ECB, for example, where you suddenly start buying different countries' bonds in order to, to narrow the spreads. For Well, and let's talk a little bit about the ECB, if we may. I mean, I've written so many columns about European monetary policy, and I'm not a great fan of the ECB, but to be fair, they are put into an impossible position. Because monetary union was badly designed. I think that's probably fair to say. It started with members that were not ready for it, and the rules were never followed. And by the way, they were not even followed for Germany when they had excessive budget deficits in the early 2000s. And now the ECB is in an impossible position. There is no fiscal equalization happening in Europe. And they don't want to be blamed for this political euro project um, should it implode. So does the ECB even have a chance to fulfill its mandate? Well, it's enormously challenging for them, particularly because, as you say, there's no fiscal equalisation mechanism. And you've seen in the past that some of the debt rules that they've had, the 60% public debt ratios, for example, and uh, what sort of flow conditions around budget deficits to GDP, they've readily been broken. And you're there with countries with different needs and different requirements. So, for example, you see inflation quite high in Germany, for example, where the, the Bundesbank would like to have seen monetary policy tighten much more quickly and have reduced QE, much less stimulus, and some of the other countries as well. I think The, the Dutch, Baltic states. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you get into a very tricky situation where the, the ECB has so many diverse countries with different needs and they, they have different productivity records. I mean, German productivity is way higher than France and Italy, let alone the southern European countries. So the ECB board meetings can sometimes be fractious, as you, I imagine. <laughs> as you know, as they try and, uh, try and work out what to do. But they are in this situation where they are buying sovereign bonds of different members and they're really asset managers and they're taking on fiscal responsibilities and trying to, uh, in many t- cases, try and create confidence in, in the euro. Just a follow-up question on that then. I'm usually irritated when people say that the solution to the euro's problems is fiscal equalization. Because to me that sounds as if it's just glossing over the main problem, which you just mentioned, which is the productivity differential across Europe. So wouldn't that just mean actually glossing over the fundamental construction flaws of the eurozone? I mean, yes, you can keep it alive, and I think you can keep the euro alive for as long as there's political will, because for economic reasons, it wouldn't have come into existence. So would fiscal equalization be the solution to Europe or just a band-aid? 
I'm not sure it'd be a solution, but it would help, I think, in terms of the degrees of freedom facing policymakers and governments. But getting fiscal equalisation is going to be immensely challenging given the sovereign issues. But the fiscal equalisation price would probably only make the cost of monetary union more obvious to voters in Central European countries. Oh yes, absolutely, yes. We, we agree. Yes, and in particular, uh, the Southern Europe would be, would be looking at German voters to subsidise them indefinitely. And the awful thing there is, well, uh, when would it stop? Because once you get used to a particular level of subsidy, well, then you need more. So what would be the limit on it? Well, the limit can only be political and that can only be very fractious and divisive for Europe. We all understand that, you know, the European project was one to try and avoid another European war, which is a, a goal we could all subscribe to if it was going to be successful. But the trouble was the structure which they, they built up in the early 1990s wasn't one which was going to be sustainable. And Martin Feldstein, sort of uh, top public finance economist at Harvard University and later a chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers, published a very prescient paper in the early 1990s in the Journal of Economic Perspectives. And he said, what we economists have to understand is that this euro structure doesn't make sense in economic terms. It doesn't look sustainable. It's not an optimal currency area, which was a, con a well-developed concept in economics, but it's done for political reasons. Yes. And the optimists at the time amongst the economists, and there were some of them, said, we agree with your analysis, but when it starts to fall apart, the governments will come together and do the right thing to make it sustainable. And that's been the debate ever since. Indeed. I remember actually reading an interview with Milton Friedman in the early 2000s where he said the euro wouldn't survive the first major recession. I think Milton Friedman probably underestimated um, the political will to keep this project alive at all yeah. costs. Um, now that we have analysed the last 20 or 30 years of monetary policy together, I mean, it's easy to spot some mistakes in hindsight, of course. But I want to ask you specifically, Graham, do you have any regrets in hindsight, things you should have done differently when you were in charge? Uh, there's always things that you go home and puzzle about and say, uh, have we made policy mistakes here? I think looking, and I'm conscious that, you know, if you live in a glass house, you shouldn't throw stones, but I'm very keen to collaborate with Bryce on this paper because, because the mistakes that have been made by central banks are so grievous. They're so damaging in terms of the adjustments that lie ahead and also to the damage to their own credibility and the confidence that people have them in them as, in terms of price stability as a bastion of price stability. I was fortunate in that during my time, as I say, we had growth that averaged 3% and employment growth averaged 3%. There was no productivity growth, which isn't the central bank's issue. But inflation was below the midpoint of 2% where we would like it to have been over on average, mainly due to those globalisation factors. But we did have a situation that I, that I do regret. We did get wrong. Although at the time, it was when we made that judgment, it certainly wasn't clear that we were doing anything wrong. We were in a situation where the New Zealand economy was growing more rapidly than the rest of the world, or at least the advanced economies in the world. So we're a bit out of cycle. 
And we started to see inflation pressures coming through in the what we call the non-tradable sector. Now, that's non-tradables are things that are not traded over a border. So it tends to be government, local government, services to some extent, and uh, the building industry. And we started to see inflation of the order of 3.5% in the non-tradable sector. Now, the non-tradables accounted for about half of the CPI, and we started to see inflation expectations increase. So we, we raised interest rates three times by 25 basis points, so three-quarters of a percent in total, and we had to unwind that. And that put pressure, raising interest rates put pressure on exporters, and it had it carried some costs, there's no question. But what we underestimated was just how low or how negative inflation was coming from the rest of the world in terms of globalisation factors. So I have a regret about that. What I don't regret was that we felt on the evidence at the time that we were doing the right thing and acting quickly to try and stop inflation pressures become widespread and do great damage to the society. I don't regret our intentions at that point in time, given the information we had. Just to follow up on that, you mentioned that central banks around the world have made severe mistakes in the last decades. Now, central bank policy doesn't fall from heaven. It is made by people. And especially in central banking and monetary policy, people often play very dominant roles. We all probably remember Paul Walker, the legendary chair of the US Fed. We remember Alan Greenspan. We remember maybe Karl Otto Pöhl at the Bundesbank. So it's always personalities making these decisions. Now you say there were severe mistakes made. I don't want you to name anyone here. I'm just asking, how difficult is it for the global central banking community to have an open discussion about these mistakes, given that they are so closely linked to personalities people who you've worked with for decades, who are probably friends, with whom you're in touch, who you respect, who you like. How difficult is it then to have an open debate about the mistakes being made when all of these mistakes, or many of them, are so personally linked to some personalities working in the system? Yes, I had the... uh, It's a very good question. And I had the great pleasure to meet all three individuals uh, one-on-one once. You have to tell me more about Carl (laughs) Poole. He was such a figure. (laughs) He certainly was. We had lunch one day. Uh, I was very fortunate. And he resigned, of course, in protest against Helmut Kohl at the time. Yes, yes. I was in a... It's interesting. You know, I was in a, a meeting with Alan Greenspan and Jim Wolfenson at the World Bank. And... Alan Greenspan and Jim Wolfenson were very close friends. They used to play tennis together and meet each other regularly. And both were coming up to a point of retirement. So Jim invited Alan Greenspan in, and there were about six of us around the table. And someone inevitably asked the question, well, what do you see as the greatest threat to the global economy? And this was about, this was about 2006 or so, 2005, 2006. And he, what keeps you awake at night, in essence? And he leaned back in his chair and we all sort of waited to hear the answer. And he said, well, I think it's the credit risk in the Chinese banking system. And little did he realise, or others realise, ourselves included, that the greatest risk was in front of our eyes in terms of the US banking and housing markets and things like that. Central bankers do talk very frankly with each other one-on-one and they do when they 
have discussions in Basel every two months. There's a group of probably about 40 central bankers that do that, and those discussions, with New Zealand included, are valuable. What I think they need to do now is, is to really study the things that, uh, that they've got wrong and review the sorts of issues that Bryce and I raise in the paper and other people have, have raised them as well in the media and indicate what they've learned from that process and what steps they're taking to, to rebuild public confidence because that's absolutely critical. Now looking at the outlook for inflation and for the economy more generally, Bryce, where do you see this current inflation crisis going? And actually, what would you like to achieve with your joint paper? Well, uh, achievement with the joint paper is is seeing a, a, a rational and a deliberate, purposeful public debate, something saying, yes, there are issues here. We don't want a repeat of what's happened, what changes to institutional arrangements should be considered and debated. On your, the first part of your question about the outlook, the reading from experience and, and the, the economic literature on this is quite big, is that when countries, governments get into these big public debt problems and inflation problems, it's a long, slow road, let's say, a slog out of it. So a period of weak economic growth and, uh, if any, economic growth, um, a lot of pain, bankruptcies from inflation, people losing money, and rather desperate attempts by governments to force people to do things that they don't want to do, and in particular to buy government paper at prices which they wouldn't want to pay given the inflation outlook. So, yeah, countries have been in this place in the past many times, and, and the message is that it's, it's tough to get out of it. Same question to you, Graeme. Where do you see the current situation going and what would you like to achieve? I certainly agree with Bryce's comments. We're going to see below trend rates of growth, certainly in the advanced economies over the next two years. I think there's a significant probability that the US may go into recession in 2023. The UK, I think, is in an immensely difficult situation. I think we're in a very difficult situation in New Zealand as, as well. I think some of the most difficult problems will appear in the developing countries. As we've talked about before, the... Sri Lanka as a starting well, point. Well, that's, that's just that's just a starter, but there are many potential Sri Lankas out there, particularly those that have corporate sectors and governments that are highly exposed to the US dollar. They're experiencing real pain. South America. Yeah, as well as high inflation and food and energy prices. And so a number of those countries will need debt restructuring. You'll see poverty levels increase significantly because in the end, the adjustment of monetary policy most acutely falls upon the least disadvantaged and the most vulnerable people in society. Uh, what would I like to see from the paper I'd really like to see, as Bryce has said, a public discussion on these sorts of issues. And I would like to see central banks reflect very deeply on the sorts of issues that we've raised in the paper and then to comment publicly, explain to the public what steps they're taking to, to rebuild the confidence that the public should have in them. And let's hope that this is exactly what your paper will achieve. 
a broader discussion, a deeper discussion, a wider discussion on how to move forward and how to get out of the current inflationary mess. But for now, thank you, Graham. Thank you, Bryce. It was mm -hmm. a pleasure to talk to you and we hope that your paper gets a lot of attention. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Oliver.